0: Well, that was epic, wasn't it? There is just so much to discuss about this episode, so much to analyze, especially the hard home experience, of course, which is what I'm calling it, the hard home experience. It's a very unusual thing to be saying about uh, what's basically a really long action sequence. You don't normally get that kind of depth from an action sequence normally with action you sit back you enjoy it it's eye candy it's exciting it's exhilarating perhaps but it doesn't usually deepen the story or expand the universe but that's exactly what we got it's it's really the best use of tv as a medium when we were they're really taking the old cliche line a picture is worth a thousand words and they're really proving how true that is And we have many thousands of words to say about this episode in general. Now IMDB has been a spoiler in the past. And though it's not always trustworthy since edits can be made by people who are not necessarily directly involved with the project. Or people who have more... Or have an agenda. For example, in one case in the past we had an agent play up the role of one of their clients. Which got people thinking it was something a lot more than it was. But that said... This episode did say it would have the Knight's King in it ahead of time, and sure enough, that did happen. So sometimes it's accurate. There used to be a reference to episode 10 having Benjen Stark in it, but that's been removed, and I I suspect that's because it's total BS, and I don't mean BS meaning Benjen Stark. I mean, well, you know what I mean. The other interesting thing about IMDb is that this episode has a 9.9 rating as of this recording with... 22,000 voters having responded. For perspective, I browsed the ratings for all the other episodes. There's 48 total episodes, including this one. And the most are in the mid to low eights. That's the typical rating for a Game of Thrones episode. The the next highest was Reigns of Castamere. Of course, that's the Red Wedding episode. That got a 9.7. So I guess people really like seeing the Starks killed off. (laughs) And The Lion and the Rose, which was Joffrey's death, that I can understand a bit more, seeing Joffrey's death was more satisfying. That's the second most popular episode, not counting Hard Home, which would make this the third most popular episode, The Lion and the Rose, at 9.5. The first episode to beat a 9 at all was Blackwater with a 9.2. And only nine episodes total, including Hard Home, have beaten the 9.0 threshold. Now, a caveat there, a lot of times when something is new, it gets higher ratings, certainly the IMDb top... 250 movies is is littered with newer movies that over time kind of settle a bit lower. But still, this could be Game of Thrones' most popular episode of all time. Uh, I don't know that it'll stay that way, but it's a contender. So that's interesting. And, well, I I have nothing negative to say about that. I thought this episode was great. What about you guys here? We have our Radio Westeros people back. Good to see you guys again, Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy. Did you guys love this episode or... Were you kind of in the middle, or what do you think?
1: Yes. Yes, I loved it. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, we both loved it. We both loved it, didn't we? Excellent. All right. Well, hello and welcome again to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Of course, this is a book-to-show episode, so we will be combining both elements, book and show, quite a bit. The show takes the lead, the book colors things in, and helps us decide what might or might not happen. It's getting harder and harder to do this. I don't mean it's getting less fun, because it's a blast doing this and being here for you guys and talking about Game of Thrones with everybody. But it is harder relating the books to the show, because the divergencies get bigger and bigger. And this episode, while there's some evidence that some of these things happened in the books, they happened off screen, and so... It's hard to say how similar it really is, but seeing it on screen was just amazing. We're having a lot of fun with that. We're going to spend most of this episode discussing it, but we will be talking about other things. I'll give a brief rundown on what to expect this episode. We're going to start with Essos. We're going to go to Braavos. Then we're going to go to King's Landing, kind of a east to west route. Then we're going to go north to Winterfell. Then the Wall. Then hard home, The big action scene. And then we'll do some questions from Watchiners, depending on how much time we have. Then we'll do the credits. Then we'll discuss the trailers, which includes a few more Watchiners questions. And the first Watchiners comment I want to throw out there is from His HisDudeness915. I had trouble coming up with themes for this episode. And we didn't really... We normally do a lot of that in the show-only show, to, show only review. There wasn't a whole lot to say about that this time. But His HisDudeness915 had one good suggestion. It's the theme of new and possibly unlikely alliances. Danny and Tyrion getting together. Sansa and Rick, maybe to a lesser extent. John and Tormund and the Wildlings and the Night's Watch, of course, is the big one. They're basically people who are unlikely allies kind of coming together to maybe fight something that's bigger than either of them. I kinda I like that. That's a good good theme catch there. So, another big important announcement before we get any farther, before we get into the, the thick of it. We're going to have a live episode next week. We're actually going to have two live episodes next week. The show-only review is going to be live on Monday at 4.30 Eastern Daylight Time. And we're going to do the book-to-show review live as well. We don't have a time just yet as of this recording. We don't, but by the time the episode is live, you'll probably be able to find a link in the description telling you what time and all the other details. So that'll be a lot of fun. We're even going to try out some of the Q&A features. So those of you who are able to attend the live event should be able to ask questions during the actual recording. And that should be a lot of fun. Something we'll play with. And if it works out well, we'll be able to do more of that in the future. More ways to increase the interactivity. More ways to make this more of a communal thing. Something we all love. Something that's great a great thing about Game of Thrones fandom. But let's get into... Essos. <coughs> Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy. you guys had done some work on some of the topics that are going to come up later in this episode. Before we get any further, why don't you guys tell everybody how to find you, and then we'll repeat that at the end of the episode so everybody is very sure.
2: Well, thanks, Aziz. If if you guys are watching on YouTube, we've got a YouTube channel called Radio Westeros, so you can, uh, you can try us out and subscribe if you like it. And uh, failing that, if you're just an audio-only person, then... Radioestrus.com. Come and check out our podcasts.
0: Perfect. So let's talk about Essos. Let's say we got Dir... Deer- I almost said Dirion. Well, no, I did say Dirion. Danny, Tyrion, and Jorah. So Tyrion, interesting comments. He says, it's too soon to know about ending your service. I think he said a lot of the right things. This, he flattered her. He said a lot of the right things, but he wasn't exaggerating. Everything he said about her, like kind of buttering her up, it was all accurate. It was all true. It, this isn't necessarily how it's going to go down in the books, but I imagined it a little bit like this: about you know, Tyrion just saying all the right things, talking, impressing Danny with his knowledge and his and his uh, experience and his just his insights. Is is this what you guys kind of imagined roughly, or did you had you thought about this much in terms of what you would expect from a Danny Tyrion meeting? Well,
2: I, I I expected it to be a bit harder work for Tyrion. I. I think in the books it might be a bit more difficult you know with perhaps a bit more tension involved wondering if Tyrion's going to say you know the right thing to her and uh, I thought it was a little bit too easy but given the time constraints of the show I'm sure they condensed what the meeting will be like in the books.
0: Did you guys wonder about the lack of mention of dragons in their conversations? It was interesting that Tyrion didn't either, he didn't bring up that he saw Drogon, not that he would know that that dragon's name was Drogon, but he would have had to suspect that was one of her dragons, I would think. Was that a bit of a surprise that that didn't come up yet?
1: Uh, Yeah, he, because he did mention the three dragons. She has three dragons. Yeah. Um, So I was surprised that he didn't day uh, yeah, by the way
0: <laughs> one thing that we might need to keep in mind though is that in the books we've all kind of accepted that Tyrion is sort of an expert on dragons as, as far as that goes I'm not sure that the show has really painted him as that where he certainly did the saddle for Bran just like in the books which is one of the things that people tie used to tie to him tie him to the whole dragon situation maybe he'll be the one to design dragon saddles or something like that but we don't hear about him being a dragon expert or him being obsessed with dragons like we do in the book. So that's something important to remember, that he may not know all those things about dragons that we assume he does know because of his book characters.
2: But uh, on the other side of the coin, he could just reveal at some point in the show that he's read a thousand books on dragons and he he knows what, you know what to ha- how to ride them properly or how to keep them he might just re- reveal it and it might again condense condense uh, Tyrion's dragon experience it
0: it could be a bit like what we saw with Tyrion and Jorah where we all kind of wondered well, why hasn't Tyrion brought up Geo or Mormont yet bring talk you know bring up the fact that you knew his dad Tyrion it could be a similar thing where they're just going to have that he'll bring that up next episode you know but maybe not we'll see so then so Danny does the does a smart thing she has Tyrion break down the Jorah decision. Say, hey, you know, well, what, what would you do here? What should I do? This is, this is your kind of trial by fire in a sense, which is an appropriate analogy to use for a dragon queen. <laughs> <laughs> He's weighing things back and forth. I thought that was interesting. And he asks some good questions like, did he have a chance to confess? And he points out that he is still in love with you or is in love with you, but he did not trust you. Uh, Watchner Guido Mars points out that Jorah still maybe doesn't trust her. He didn't point out his grayscale to her. To be fair, as Watchner Chris Gettle points out, Jorah was ordered not to speak. So he maybe couldn't have... <laughs> he maybe not had an opportunity to point. He could have just rolled his sleeve up and said, hey, look, look, grayscale. But I got to say, Ian Glenn is really growing on me as an actor. I wasn't a huge fan of him in the earlier seasons. But he's stolen several scenes recently... With just his facial reactions, that's that's really a good thing. I'm happy to see that. Now, another great suggestion from a watcher is from Derek Credle, who's gotten his name on here a few times this season, and he he says that Tyrion should have suggested cutting Jorah's arm off as a as a punishment for for Jorah, and that would have taken care of multiple things. We get the punishment, and we get rid of grayscale all at (laughs) once. But that would have been funny. And this whole killing devoted people line must have hit really hard because, and, and Tyrion, Tyrion wouldn't have known how hard it hits. So there's no way Tyrion knows about the whole Masador execution from earlier in the season. Now, Lady Gwyn, what did you think about that?
1: Well, I agree with that. I mean, that must have definitely struck a nerve there. Um, as far as Tyrion's, you know, recommendations about Jorah, I wondered, as the scene was playing out, if Tyrion would suggest that Jorah go to the Night's Watch, which in my opinion, would have been really poetic given his relationship with Jorah's father and, you know, the time he spent with the Night's Watch and the idea that maybe Jorah should have gone there in the first place instead of fleeing from Ned. But alas, that was a great idea. <laughs> not to be, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, too bad
0: you're not one of Danny's counselors. It's just too bad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole remove Sir Sor- Sor- Jorah from the city line which is kind of the conclusion Tyrion, you know kind of guides her to the conclusion without giving it to her she kind of accepts it herself as she's led along all the logic behind the decision all the things that come go into it we get that sad dragon music again and lady when you notice something about the end of that scene as well
1: yeah the, you know you have that sad dragon music but there's um that dragon noise it kind of sounds like a bird screeching hmm you heard that in the scene uh, just prior to Drogon's appearance to Danny atop the pyramid at the beginning of the season. Mm. Just this little, very faint, you know, just to remind you that they're still there. So you definitely heard that as he watch as he walked out of the city.
0: It's an interesting device. It's like in in the books we have certain phrases and certain ways of certain words used in certain ways, like the term "rustle" in in terms of how a werewood sounds or. Other little things like that, that us attentive readers, people who have put a lot of time into getting to know the text really well, there are certain things like that that are clues. And the show is doing the same thing along these lines with audio clues. It's, it's, the different, it's a, their version of, of that whole thing, moving that to a different medium. So I think that's pretty neat. So now we have Tyrion and Danny speaking together more directly uh, without Jorah around. Now, it's it's always fun to point out some of the similarities between Tyrion and, and Danny and Jon Snow, in a way. They all killed their mother being born. I hate putting it that way, but that's how people like to paint it in this world. It's like, what, you're blaming the infant? Come on. <laughs> yeah. So we wonder about whether Tyrion suggested maybe this is where you belong. From a show watcher's point of view, I wonder if that that might seem like a reasonable possibility. I don't think any of us book readers think that's a legitimate possibility. Do you guys think that there's any chance that she'll never come to Westeros?
1: No. (laughs) It's just (laughs) short. No. (laughs) Yeah,
0: no. She's coming to Westeros, yeah. Okay, that's quick and easy. But he does make a lot of great points. He shows her just how difficult it's going to be. It's not just going to be come on over with your big army and you're not just going to get the support of the common people like you necessarily say. Tyrion... Really shows how valuable he is. He he, cuts to the heart of it. How you know? How's that whole working without the nobility going for you? You know? How's how is it doesn't work without the the noble houses supporting you? You got to have some support from the nobility, or it just isn't going to work. And I didn't think Dan, I didn't think Tyrion was terribly impressed by her break the wheel speech. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. <laughs> he he was like
1: yeah yeah mm-hmm. after all the. Everything he just said, I don't think he really bought that. Uh, kind of unrealistic. But I did want to say, Matt touched uh, on this a little bit that um, this scene was a little bit rushed in some respects. But remember that presumably Danny's going to fly away within the next two episodes. So we have to get Tyrion established as a trusted advisor and very quickly. Uh, presumably he's going to be in the role of Baristan in season six as the you know, Danny's voice in Marine.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's exactly where we're headed and that's a good good catch as far as pointing out why it's important to establish Tyrion as trusted quickly. And it's also something that they've the show does kind of regularly. They they don't have they don't have time for letting relationships build. They have to move quickly on that. And and I you know, it's too bad that we don't get to see it build more quickly or build build up more gradually. But I think we all have gotten a little used to that from the TV medium as as a kind of a necessary evil of sorts. So, real quick, we have Jorah and Yezan near the end of our trek from the marine area. There's still no sign of grayscale spreading or, well, it's spreading on him, but it's not spreading to anyone else yet. We haven't seen any sign of, I thought for a moment that's exactly what we were going to see when he showed back up with the slavers, or with the the gladiators whatever you want to call them the pit fighters i thought maybe we would see some clue there but now that he's working amongst them again maybe that's the maybe that's what we'll start to see it i'm not really sure you guys have any any other thoughts on maybe the 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 progression of this grayscale subplot or is that just still kind of a wait and see thing
2: well we'll have to wait and see but i think it's going to be pretty major right on Uh, my instincts are that this grayscale is going to be something that you know Really does some damage to marine, and you know, may like we said, maybe replacing the pale mare, which in the books has got the potential. At the moment, it's damaging troops by the thousands outside of marine, but you know what happens if it spreads in marine. So, like we said, it could could be a replacement, and yeah, it's interesting why, to think why they're bringing Jorah back to the pit and not elsewhere. I mean. Could he be eaten? It seems like the grayscale would have probably gone no- nowhere if, if that, that's the case. Will he try and save Danny, or is this purely is this where the grayscale spreads? I'm really looking forward to seeing Jorah involved in the drama of the the Drogon riding. And Lady Gwyn, have you got any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, you know, just getting back to Tyrion sort of filling in for Baristan. I think he's very possibly going to take that role of trying to save Danny from Drogon. Um, save, in quotes, because, you know, it turns out she didn't really need saving. Uh, if he does, I kind of expect he'll come off the worst for it. But I guess we'll have to see. I expect it'll be a very, very dramatic. Well,
2: Baris- Baristan was OK, but he was very lucky. He was waving his hands saying over here over here really trying to tr- try to get roasted <laughs> right. by Drogon right. just to save Danny it's it's where you see him you know in, in his really brave mode you, you know you can't doubt that he's a badass <laughs> yeah that guy
0: yeah he really is <laughs> it's too bad he isn't in the show anymore <laughs> but i i guess we have to understand but i do i am interested in seeing this as well i think you're right about Yo, boy, I think you're right about Jorah in this in the sense that it's kind of like Jamie in a weird way. The fact that he has this weird thing going on with his left arm or his right arm, in, J- in J- Jamie's case, kind of makes him safer, at least in the short term. You're not going to have this defining thing happen to a character and then just kill them off before it can play out. So Jorah's at least got to infect some people before he dies. If if he doesn't survive even longer, so. Yeah, well, Ian Glenn, I guess we'll be seeing you next season almost certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh you'll have to spend extra time in uh, makeup before right. each episode. So, so, no. Some that. gray makeup. And in in terms of looking at how Tyrion might how his role might play out in next season, it's interesting that Rather than examining his own chapters, you might wanna, we might want to consider looking at Barristan's book chapters to see what Tyrion's job is going to be. Is he going to be the one to deal with—there is no, of course, shave paper to deal with things of a similar nature? He would handle them a lot more confidently than Barriston would, and not without feeling like he was dirty. But I think that's a good, a good thing to do if you want to acclimate yourself to what we might be seeing from Tyrion— and a good way to do that is if you don't have time to go back and read the chapters, go ahead and check them out through audiobook. If you go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the audible.com link on the right panel, you can get a free 30-day trial of Audible that allows you to get one book for free. And while you try out the 30-day trial, if you don't like it, you can cancel it and pay nothing. But even if you do, you get to keep that free book so try it out. Might be a good way to stay on top of things in terms of what's coming up next in the rest of this season as well as next season. Plus, it's always fun to reread any chapters from any of the books, let's be honest. Okay, so bravos. Let's go to bravos as we work our way westward. Looks like Ari is getting a lot better at the Lion game, which is nice to see. Her first customer as she's going through her story with we'll keep calling him Jakin for now, is Lara. The, uh, the actress, this actress, Lara, her real name is Serene Sofair, which is kind of funny because she's a redhead with really fair skin. So it's like, how, how accurate is your name? Very. But we have seen her before. Even more interestingly, a, ver- a very observant watching her by the name of Ostrich Stark. Points out that this was the same girl that was with San in the bathing house last season, and I double checked that on IMDb. He's totally right, Mr. Ostrich Stark. Good catch, and I think this is awesome. Not and and it's it's a funny thing to say as awesome. This is, this little character reappearing again. Well, let me explain. It's one of the things that George R. Martin does that we love so much. It's it's one of the touches he adds to his books that gives them more life it breathes more reality into them it makes them feel more like a like a like his world is real and that it's got these elements and small details that make it feel that way so when the show touches on some of those same things i really appreciate that they're trying to do things at least a little bit like george does even though it's in a much different medium so good job showrunners on that that made me happy even though it's such a small thing i'm sure there's others that we've missed by the way i'm sure if we if we didn't catch that one there's probably some other sneaky ones from previous seasons i mean hey history of westeros didn't even cover the first three seasons of the show so i'm sure we missed some back then as well and and we probably missed some recently too so but there's a little other there's another undertone with this scene another nod to book readers so to speak lady Gwen, why don't you tell us about that
1: yeah that just um and even if if into this plays into this observation about this actress being uh, in an earlier episode. Little hint about this woman's o- occupation. Um, the scene's set in the morning, and she tells Aria that she's going home for the day. She's done with work. So you get the little hint that she's a lady of the night. Um, and if, you know, like the, the very observant show watcher could have said, oh, that's why I recognize her, because she's one of the whores from another episode. That's right. Yeah. No.
0: And there's another nice little nod to the books with this Moonsinger Elaine when she already tries to lie about where she's doing some of her business. So, Yoke Boy, I talked a little bit about the Moonsinger history in our show-only review, but I was doing it from memory, so it wasn't very, ac- very thorough. So give us a more detailed description of the Moonsingers and why this is a cool detail. Yeah, okay, the Moonsingers... The
2: Moonsingers have the largest temple in Bravos, and this is because they helped to found the place. Uh, Moonsingers are actually priestesses of the Jogos Nai. In the oppressive time of the Valyrian Freehold, a slave ship mutinied, and some women of the Jogos Nai prophesied that they would find shelter in a lagoon and thus be safe from the valerians due to the heavy fog and other factors ge- geographical factors and um, the this prophecy turned out to be true and it was how bravos was founded and of course that's why its location was a mystery for a long time and so in tribute the Moonsingers, yeah, this is why they have the largest temple in Bravos. It's a pretty cool story.
0: Yeah, it's neat. It's so weird to have this major, this, this most, so called most popular or most revered, in a sense, religion in Bravos is from this nomadic horse people that live half a globe away. It's a really neat what? little set of circumstances, but that's, that's slave ships for you. They, they capture people from far, far away. So let's also talk about Jaikin's interesting reaction to the idea that Arya may not be ready. She, she had this kind of creepy smile on her face. Creepy because she knows she's going to do faceless man stuff and you're not supposed to, it's not supposed to make you happy. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you guys think about the way he, he was just so casual about it? Do you think that it was, he doesn't really care or it's just kind of how his religion works or is there anything more to it?
1: Well, I'm not really sure. For me, it just kind of raised more questions. You know, he says, is she ready or not? The wave asks him if she's ready. And I I didn't come up with any answers, but I wondered, what are the implications if she fails? Um, is it just that they lose a promising acolyte? Or is there some sort of danger to the Faceless Men? Or is it just a danger to Arya? Uh, I didn't really sort it out, but... Yeah. Definitely food for thought. It doesn't seem
0: like Arya has any, like, big secrets she could give away. I mean, it's not like the Faceless Men are some sort of hidden entity within Bravos. People tend to seem to know that they exist. So, yeah, it's... it's. I'm not sure what's going on with that. It might be interesting to see if there... Maybe there'll be a developing subplot between Arya's inclusion there at all. Maybe the waif will continue to complain about her presence and maybe make... Uh, bring it up to a point where they're forced to make some decision. And then maybe that has something to do with the upcoming conflict with Marin Trant, which may, I would still think is going to be this season, but they're, we're running out of time for that. I wonder, maybe they'll do that early next season. It's possible. Now let's talk about Mr. Cointooth, the insurance guy. We also get a nod to... Cat of the Canals, which is Arya's, obviously, her character name for at least one chapter in A Feast for Crows. And we see a cat along her route, so that was a little nod to that, I suppose. And, of course, Arya begins skin-changing into a cat during her time with the Faceless Men, which is part of her keeping her identity as a Northerner and not becoming no one. It's the opposite direction of going becoming no one when you are using your... Old God's powers. <laughs> so it's pretty yeah. defining characteristic. that. So that's part of her whole not quite nobody, not quite no one aspect, I suppose. So Yoke Boy, let's talk about this whole plot, this assassination plot, with, with some comparisons to the books. What do you have for us here? I, I thought it was interesting, first of all, that he was called a gambler instead of just a crooked insurance guy. <laughs> yes, yeah, so
2: there are some differences and I've actually got a theory for the tv show so I'll lead up to that so what happened in the So I think this is in the ugly little girl chapter Aya is sent out on a hit and she observes this man learning his habits and you know how he goes about his day and she notices that every time he gets paid he bites his coins to see that they're That they're real and they're not not fake. So the quote is, he never looked at the coins. Instead, he bit them, always on the left side of his mouth. And then she goes, Aya goes back and sees a captain who she knows does business with this insurance salesman. And in his hand is a bag of coins. So she knows the coins are for the insurance guy. So what she does is pretends to rob him. She cuts his uh, money bag. The quote is, she slipped a hand through the gap, slits the purse open with a finger knife and filled her fist with gold. But as she slips her fingers in, what we find out later is that she places a poisoned coin in the bag. And then when the guy goes to pay the insurance man, he this thing with biting the coin as soon as the poison enters his mouth that's it his heart mysteriously gives out but in this show I've got a different idea I was thinking about this and I thought it was curious that this man says he likes vinegar on his oysters quite specific and then when you see Aya putting the vinegar on, her back's turned towards him and he can't see what she's doing. So that is the ideal ideal opportunity for poisoning, I think. So I think Aya will poison the vinegar on his oysters and not the coins. Or at least she'll poison the vinegar and do something with it. But um, he did say that he buys... He bought four, didn't he? So she could poison like the last one and she can get away. So that's my idea on how the coin tooth from the books might be
0: vinegar tooth. The <laughs> the <show>. Vinegar tooth, <laughs> <right on>. <laughs> <laughs> That makes sense. Also, the the coin tooth thing also is a tie to what the alchemist does to Pate in the beginning of A Feast for Crows, where he also bites on a golden coin and... It kills him. So, and the kindly man even refers to that coin, that kind of coin as, as, oh, you took one of his coin and replaced with one of ours. So it's like, that's a standard thing, I suppose, for the faceless man. It's a normal way for them to kill with his special coins. So that's pretty neat. So yeah, I think we've, I think that's pretty accurate. I think you've figured that out there. You know, boy, that's almost certainly what's going to happen with the, with the vinegar. It'll be the last vinegar that he enjoys even the bottles look kind of similar like just like a glass small glass vial yeah go go back and watch the scene again because it
2: does look like the kind of thing you'd put poison in doesn't it yeah yeah and you get the
1: close-up yeah
0: it's like hey wait is that vinegar is that a vinegar bottle like
1: yeah
0: you saw my last (laughs) bottle it was the same So, it's, one thing that's kind of interesting that I think a lot of people don't realize is how close Bravos really is to the north. And it's, it, it seems like it's such a faraway place, but it's actually a lot closer to some of the main action sequences that are happening in this episode. Bravos is sort of lined up geographically with the northern part of the Vale, in a sense. So it's not a whole lot farther, and you're in White Harbor, and then a little bit farther north along the east coast. You pass the outside of where the Dreadfort would be, and then a little farther than there, and you're up near Skagos. All this info is made clear in the Lands of Ice and Fire, which is a wonderful collection of maps. You can get that through History of Westeros. We have a link for the Lands of Ice and Fire there. Also includes... The location of the Tower of Joy. Oh, hey, how about that? The Lands of Ice and Fire have some some real detail in them beyond just covering what's out there. But it's always good to keep track of what's what and where's where. So let us go ahead and move on to the next location. We have our good buddies Cersei and Super Scepter, Unella here at King's Landing. King's Landing, indeed. Cersei and the many septas combined into one as we have the law of conservation of septas in full effect here. It seemed like Unella is kind of nasty. I mean, I guess Unella was nasty in the books too, but this whole smacking her in the face, pouring the water in the ground, kind of taunting her, that's, that's, I guess some people maybe like seeing that because it's Cersei getting a bit of her own medicine in a sense. It's, It's definitely torturous and in the books... Cersei is woken every hour and asked to confess. It's like a sleep deprivation. She's without her normal amenities, and she's hungry and isolated, doesn't know what's going on. She's real anxious about her son. What do you think about this stuff, you guys? It's, it reminds me of the, the lying game, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, how about that? <laughs> it's,
2: the tr- it's the truth game. <laughs> confess. The confession, oh, that, wasn't confession. Yeah, that, that wasn't a confession. Oh, that wasn't a confession. Not yet. <laughs> I thought it was really poignant when she was drinking water from the floor. You know, more so than... They can torture Cersei whatever, but I think it's more powerful to see her on her own in the dark room, you know, sucking up water from the floor. Because Cersei is someone that has been showered in gold her whole life. I think that really, you know, very spoilery. That applies in the books and, and on the show. And to see her in a state where she... Hasn't got her basic needs met. I mean, that is as torturous as anything for Cersei.
1: Yeah, she's certainly brought low very quickly. But on the other hand, she's still defiant. She's be- not complying. But moreover, she continues to threaten Septa Unella with killing her, and you know, so she's she's not <laughs> quite at rock bottom yet.
0: So then, a little bit later, we have Cersei and Kyburn together. This is a bit more of similarities to the books in this scene. We hear he reports that Kevin has returned, which in the books, Kevin actually does come to visit her, but they don't get to talk about much because Kevin does the whole, hey, they're listening to us thing, the whole, hey, watch out for the little birds. And that, so that kind of changes the tone of the, of the, of the scene. But it, it reminds me of, a bit like how you, this, reminds, boy, this reminds you of the Lion game. There was also, to me, this scene reminded me a bit of Tyrion in prison before the Red Viper came and championed him. No one would come to see him. No one would testify in his favor. They kind of were like, oh, everyone is jumping ship from Tyrion. And it's people are kind of jumping ship from Cersei here, except for a few, maybe a few loyalists like Kyburn, who really depends on her for his position in the first place. Of course, yeah, the other... Major difference here is that Tyrion was innocent and Cersei is is not. (laughs) And also in the books, what we get is Kevin telling Cersei about what's happened to Marcella. Of course, to this point, nothing has happened to Marcella yet, or it may not happen at all. I I don't really see Marcella's getting her face cut up in the show, but eh, maybe that'll happen still. Uh, And also in in their conversation, Kevin tells Brienne or tells Cersei that. Jamie has run off with Brienne, which really confuses her, and so that's that might be a bit of a nod to what's going on there. So, Lady Gwynne, you had some other some other uh, some other takes on this scene and some undertones and connections to the books.
1: Yeah, um, Cersei does ask Kyburn about Jamie. The response is simply, "There's no word from him." So, like you know, those two storylines, Jamie and Marcella, are now rolled into one. So, she's. Possibly indirectly, also asking about Marcella. With that question, Kyburn, uh, in talking about her trial, says, "Belief is the death of reason." He talks about the uh, the faith holding a different standard of proof than the crown does. Like this is very ominous for Cersei's chances with the trial. Kyburn uh, lists all the charges. In the show, of course, they've left off day aside because she's only imprisoned the previous high and she didn't kill him but uh, i think they pretty much hit all the other charges that uh, come up against her in the book so
0: yeah definitely and there's also one thing to keep in mind is we've talked a lot about the possibility of tommen being exposed for you know an incest baby that's not on the table right now as far as her charges we're just assuming that that could come out it's the same in the books basically she's not really accused of of the incest Uh, not by the faith anyway. They still are set to have Tommen as ruler. They're not really looking to, as far as we know, to get rid of him. Partly because there isn't any other good candidates. Stannis isn't a good candidate because he worships the red god and all these other factors. So now, do you guys think that when would Kyburn was he suggesting the confession slash the walk before he was interrupted? Was that you think that's what was happening?
1: Yeah, I do because uh, in the books Kevin does. So if he was fill, filling that Kevin role, I think that is exactly what he was sort of getting, getting towards there.
0: Okay, and this is this is a device that George R. R. Martin uses a lot. It's interesting to see the show use it as well. And what I mean is that there's. A really juicy conversation that's happening and as just as it gets to a really really juicy point someone interrupts it it happens as early as old man's stories getting interrupted it it happens in with jamie or sorry with sam and john talking about things that that sam has found in these old books and it happens with Eamon and some other spots it's a really well it's i hate it no (laughs) i don't really hate i'm just kidding I just always want to know what else they have to say. So I think that might have been what's happening. Kyber may have been about to suggest or to bring up the topic of the Kyborg, of Sir Robert Strong. And Yunella walked in and he's... Okay, well, I can't talk about that anymore. I think we can all assume safely that the faith would frown on necromancy and (laughs) and the like. I don't know if it's actually in the seven-pointed star, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing that's a no-no. Probably no. no. Hey, fa- no. hey, Hi sparrow, raising the dead isn't specifically, per- you know, forbidden. I can do that. <laughs> I, I imagine that they do forbid dark. Ma- they would just say dark. Yeah, magic. any kind of blood magic. You're right. That's 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 almost certainly true. No kind, of, no sorcery, no blood magic, none of that stuff. Uh, so I was thinking maybe instead of him suggesting the confession, maybe he was saying, "Hey, well, let me just get Sir Robert Strong here, and he'll just rampage through the." through the church, but that's not going to happen. I'm pretty sure we're almost certainly getting the actual walk of shame. So no, no Sir Gregor, no Kyborg rampage just yet. We'll, we'll probably have to wait for season six to see him do anything, but that's something to look forward to. <laughs> well, so lady Gwen, you have some thoughts on how this confession and the walk, how it might play out and some similarity to the books there. Yeah. Take us through that.
1: Okay. Uh, I, I kind of suspect that, her confession, ultimately, which would probably have to come next week, um, is in and then agreeing to the walk, is going to be somewhat similar to the books because in the books, she confessed in order to get out because she needed to get to Tommen. Although in the books, it was because she needed to see him to convince him to name Robert Strong to the King's Guard. The quote is, she had to reach Tommen no matter the costs, He loves me. He will not refuse his own mother. Tommen is a good little boy, a good little king. He will do as he is told. Now here in this scene, I got the distinct feeling that they're foreshadowing something where she's just so worried about Tommen because Kybern mentions how he's not eating and he's refusing to see anybody. So I think there'll be a little bit of difference and they'll be maybe playing more to um, Cersei's human side, which the show has always done a little bit so yeah. no surprises there
0: our Knight of the Forums Darren Tucker Darren the Red had pointed out that he he thought that the Tommen refusing to eat was maybe a little bit of a nod to Lancel fasting in the books which is in, under the similar circumstances it's all, all this is related to the trial and Cersei's arrest and all that so that's a, that's an interesting possibility there definitely could be a nod to what's going on there Okay, so I think that's all we have for King's Landing. We're kind of in a holding pattern with waiting to see what's going to happen with, with the possibility of the walk and with Sir Robert Strong and what Tommen may or may not do. So I think we kind of know what's coming, but the show will probably surprise us at least a little bit with how they actually execute the, 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 these scenes coming up. But I do think we'll see some resolution to that this season. But I do know, I do wonder how they're going to leave it, how it's going to be. What's the last thing we'll get from King's Landing this season? But it's kind of a pointless thing to guess at. So we'll just wait and see. So let's go north. Let's head up to wintery, wintery Winterfell and talk about Sansa and Theon. Uh, No, no resolution yet to her little weapon that she picked up that might still be used against Theon. It could be used against Ramsay, although it doesn't seem like Ramsay is going to be around much longer, and I don't mean that he's going to die soon, I mean that physically he seems to be leaving Winterfell in short order for his commando raid, but we'll talk about that a little more in a second. First of all, although Shea couldn't be here today, she did have a few observations that are made it into our notes that I wanted to pass along. She noted that Sansa is dressed a lot like how Catelyn was dressed, down to having a Tully pin on, in fact. Uh, the high collar is very reminiscent, or if not exactly the same as the way that Catelyn was dressed back in the day so that's kind of nice I like those, I like those little touches that the show does it's, it's great that they pay attention to detail because being a fan of Game of Thrones and a Song of Ice and Fire is like being a fan of details <laughs> you have, if you're not a fan of details there's still plenty to love but if you are a fan of details there's a lot more to love
2: uh, just, just quickly I just thought of something okay how about
0: Sansa using this all against miranda oh yeah miranda's the one who's really given her the most you know the most in her face that she could actually do something to like uh, her stabbing ramsey would take a lot more bravery
2: <laughs> well you'd think now ramsey's gone that she's vulnerable to miranda miranda's obviously uh... kind of been given some kind of motive of wanting to harm her in some way with this jealousy
0: and that's been forgotten so remember it yeah lady gwen you also had some thoughts on the scene not also along the lines of uh, sansa's dress but also in the way that theon or slash reek interacts with sansa
1: yeah i think um so the dress so get back to that that dress is If not the same dress, it was actually very similar to the purple dress that she wears in a lot of the Tyrell scenes in King's Landing. I pulled screenshots of both. The Winterfell scenes are just so dark, it's impossible to be certain if it's the same exact gown. But in styling, in uh, pattern material, it's very similar to one of those uh, dragonfly gowns that she wore. At a time when she was... um, sort of regaining a sense of self uh she was had hope that she was going to be leaving with the tyrells so uh, if i had to guess i'd say that there is some symbolism there and with shea's observations um about the cat similarities i think it all ties into sansa maybe coming more into her stark self and not feeling so much of a prisoner um there's a glimmer of hope there so and as far as um the whole scene with Theon, Reek. You know, she gets this amazing new knowledge, which I think gives her hope. She's felt alone in the world for so long, and now all of a sudden, like the last two episodes, she's learned that three of her brothers, if you're counting John, are still alive. She's not the only person left from her family. So that must be uh, really hopeful for her. As far as Reek, he's Speaking about Theon in the third person, he keeps saying, I'm Reek, you know, he's doing this, I'm not Theon, I'm not Theon, until Sansa accuses him, you know, she just gets in his face and accuses him with Bran and Rickon, then he says, I deserved everything, I deserve to be Reek. So he goes on to confess everything as Theon, speaking Theon in the first person, uh, and then he gets very upset and retreats back into Reek. So, I think with him, we see it's just possible that his feelings for the Starks, guilt included, might overcome his fear of Ramsay. As he just showed himself there for a little minute.
0: Well, we can hope so. I, I, I certainly wonder how long Ramsey is going to be around. Uh, you wonder if he's going to still be needed as a villainous kind of character to have around once the White Walkers are in full swing, you know. It would be kind of interesting to to throw that that convention off a bit by having Ramsey being a valuable ally in the fight against the White Walkers. Like have him be—he's <laughs> a real brave. He turns out to be really brave and willing to fight against them and do all the stuff. Wouldn't that just be something that we just don't know how to react to? Like, well, good well, job, um, Ramsey, Thanks. Good. I don't. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> don't let don't
1: let that ice sword hit you on the way out. <laughs> 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 okay.
0: So let's talk about the Bolton campaign situation here. Roos' logic regarding the storm, and I love his joke, how high can their horses jump? That is interesting. Roos is in better shape here than he is in the books. In the books, he has too many men. Uh, and which is a weird problem for a commander to have, but he has too many men in one place in a situation where food will eventually run short. But more importantly, in the short term, a lot of those men hate each other. We've got Freys in that army, and the, no one in the North likes the Freys. Even the other Boltons aren't that thrilled with the Freys, even though they're allies. So that gave Ruse a reason to send them out to face Stannis. That reason doesn't exist here. Roost has pretty much no reason to send men away he doesn't have this kind of i have too many men together they're not you know they're not getting along that's not an issue for him he's not worried about that so it makes sense that they don't go with this whole battle situation also because that's well let's be honest that's expensive filming battles is huge and i think they we saw where a lot of that the season's budget went (laughs) kind of surprisingly and in an epic and fun way but it doesn't leave a lot of room for Stannis and, and Ramsey to have a real battle. So, a commando raid. I kind of wish the commander actually had said, Actually, Lord Bolton, Stannis has frog horses which can jump extremely high. No, I don't actually wish that. That would be weird. There are no frog horses in Westeros, even in the neck. Now, a note on the size of Stannis's military. We, we thought it likely that Stannis had hired the Golden Company, but According to the Game of Thrones wiki, the Golden Company is 10,000 strong in Game of Thrones as well as it is in A Song of Ice and Fire. And Stannis only has 6,000 men. I don't think he lost 4,000 men from the Golden Company, not even accounting for the men he already had. So apparently that's not the Golden Company, but I don't suppose the Golden Company is hugely important on the TV show anyway. But it is fun to keep track of these things. So what do you guys think? Any thoughts on what Ramsey has in mind? What is he going to do with this commando raid?
2: I think it, it'll be a straightforward kind of sabotage mission twenty men he's not looking for a huge confrontation he he'll be looking to create as much havoc as he can and given that he can retreat to a a, a warm stone castle he he ramsey isn't stupid enough to ignore the fact that all he really needs to do is ruin stannis's supplies and tents that that's all he has to do and stannis is is then got to deal with winter and and the snow so i think that maybe take out a a couple of key personnel create paranoia but mainly to sabotage and i don't think it's going to be very difficult
0: i agree from the books we we see that And it's already shown in the show how thick the snow is. In the books, we see that when the Night's Watch and the Banker approach the camp, at first they think it's an attack by Bolton. And it it turns out to be like ten guys. And they think it's a full-on attack at first because of how hard it is to see. So, yeah, you're right. Ramsay will have no trouble sneaking up on these snow-blind guards who are freezing their butts off. So, yeah, I think whatever Ramsay does... It's going to work, so I hope it's not an assassination attempt on Stannis, because, oh man, would the fandom just explode if Ramsey murdered Stannis?
1: Yeah, I think it might. Um, I, I predict an actual head explosion of our friend Brendan B. Fish if something like that happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that might be a book-throwing something moment. something like
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> or a throwing your book at the TV, in, in, in a sense. <laughs> But there, it'd be TV throwing moment. <laughs> <Something, yeah. laughs> TV out the window, rock and roll style. I saw there was a YouTube video going around about. I think it was after episode four where some guy filmed himself taking his TV outside and beating it up and destroying it after watching Barristan's death. So <laughs> it's it's happened. It's a real thing. What about Shireen though? We talked so much about poor Shireen and how she might get burned to death by Melisandre. How she could, in this case, maybe she gets kidnapped by Ramsay is one suggestion, or that she gets killed by Ramsay. Uh, the, the whole talk of, with, with her and Davos about talking about the crypts of Winterfell and foreshadowing danger to Davos, somehow that could work its way into this whole Ramsay commando raid thing. It's, it's also possible that Ramsay infiltrates Stannis's men somehow, although that seems like it doesn't exactly seem like what they were describing, but I think it's worth mentioning. I would
2: say that the commando mission by Ramsey puts Shireen in greater danger because they'll be more desperate. If they don't have tents, if they're freezing to death, the more on the back foot they are, the more Mel and Solis will be thinking about Shireen. Or ro- roast Shireen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, roast Shireen. <laughs> Oh. Poor Shireen. Never has a, a child been in the subject of so many death rumors in a, <laughs> a TV show. <laughs> There's so many horrible ways to die, too. So let's let's go ahead and move on. Let's not talk about that too much. <laughs> yeah. Let's go farther north to the wall. Let's talk about Ollie and his conversation with Sam. I th- It seems like this chat we have... Our Lord Commander and others, our own history of Westeros, Lord Commander, Lord, Lord Commander Shepard, and, and others have suggested the, that Sam probably gave the idea to Ollie. Maybe suggested the tough choices, the unpopular choices that we all, as book readers, know what's coming and realized that that was being very heavily telegraphed in that scene. It's one of those things that show, re- show watchers probably had no idea what was going on. Us book readers are like, oh boy, here it comes. <laughs> and I, what do you guys think about Ollie's view on Sam? Do you think that this is souring Ollie on Sam? He clearly liked him. He brought, brought him food because he's, you know, he, he's felt bad that he got beat up which meant that he was tolerating Gilly, which, you know, as her her being a wildling is already maybe a little stretch for for Ollie to care about, but he didn't seem to be bothered by her too much. But now maybe things are different. What do you think, Yoke Boy? I think that he showed
2: shock, didn't he, uh, at Sam's kind of defense of John. And uh, I don't know the issues that we've discussed about his before about his getting his whole village trashed that he still feels that pain i don't think he likes sam anymore and now he'll be looking at different light and seeing
0: him flirt with gilly he'll be like all the rest now Mm. and of course we have sam's line that was ominous john always comes back that is certainly a nod to his potential resurrection or whatever that will be that we're all assuming is going to happen and is this a more yet more a clue that old town is in our future yoke boy have thoughts on that
2: um it could be next episode because we're we're we're, all three of us are presuming that sam is going to be gone now aren't we before john is stabbed so it really makes sense that John comes home from this mission and says, "I need information. You know, I, I need to know about the long night. You've, Eamon's just died. It's perfect timing." So I am I, saying that, yeah, next episode, John sends him away.
1: Yeah, probably. I, I just I wonder, just as an alternative possibility, they could just have Sam and Gilly flee in the after aftermath of the stabbing just for just for sort of dramatic tension i can I see can that i tend happening to think too. that john will yeah. say something to him indicating where he wants him to go but
0: and, and i was thinking uh, in a much smaller scale something that's not terribly important but interesting to consider maybe they won't actually stab him maybe it would be some sort some of other way of dealing with him like lots of pillows <laughs> or they'll just hurt his feelings really badly <laughs> You know, they'll tell him that Grit was is still alive, she was faking her death just so she could go hook up with Sir Alissar.
1: <laughs>
0: and that she before that she hooked up with Janice Slint. So Ouch. <laughs> Rose Leslie's like, What? Come on. <laughs> what are you talking um, she's about? She's like, Ew. <laughs> okay, so I think there's not a whole lot to say about the wall. Most of that is yet to come. the that scene conveyed what, what we expected and what we might have expected pretty well, but it was brief. The main action, what we've been wait, all waiting for, what we've been saving ourselves for in this episode of, of the podcast is to talk about Hardhome. And this is a perfect chance for us to give a shout out to our Patreon Northern champions of whom there are five and a maximum of nine, only four slots left. I'm referring to Bloody Blake the Avatar, Sir Benjamin Coldwater, Knight of the Frozen Lake, Sir Alexander Greencloak, Skyon of Snow River, J. Wilson, Winter's King, and Lucifer Means Lightbringer, High Priest of the Church of Starry Wisdom. The Wildlings and the Night's Watch could have used warriors like that during this massacre, not battle, really. It, was, it had some elements of battle, but really it was a massacre. The Wildlings never had a chance. The Night's Watch never had a chance partly because they didn't see it coming, but partly because they're just severely overmatched. Now, interestingly enough, from the behind, the behind the episode, D&D talked about how this sort of happens in the books. It just happens off screen. We do have something terrible does happen at Hard Home, but we're only given vague hints, so it's got the, a bit of a suspense horror thing to it but from off screen here we get it right in our faces it's action packed but it's also got the suspense and some of the horror to it we get chill in the books we get chilling tidbits like is it grievous my lord asked Clytus. grievous enough dead things in the wood dead things in the water six ships left of the eleven that set sail john rolled up the parchment frowning night falls he thought and now my war begins and we haven't seen any ships go down, but maybe that will happen next, or maybe they won't, they'll just skip over that part. Watching her Lisa O'Crush is sad that we didn't see any actual dead things in the water, such as a Kraken White was her suggestion. Um, I think Kraken White, and I'm like, Lisa, are you trying to give us nightmares? That's just terrifying.
1: Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah.
0: And, but the, sh- the point of a show is to show and not tell, and that's what really what tv should be equipped to do it is more equipped to do really and so instead of this from the books for example where we have john trying to reason with his own sub commanders where he says are you so blind or is it that you do not wish to see what do you think will happen when all these enemies are dead above the door the raven muttered dead 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 let me tell you what will happen, John said. The dead will rise again in their hundreds and their thousands. They will rise as whites with black hands and pale blue eyes. And they will come for us. Well, that's exactly what that final scene did, didn't it? We exactly see the dead rise in their hundreds and their thousands. And the, the way the Night's King does his stare down of John, his well, whether you prefer come at me, bro, come at me, crow, or come at me, snow, they all work. Either way that that point is, is given he's like what are you going to do about this look how powerful i am you cannot stop us and we are coming for you so indeed you know they're coming for him they're coming for the realm they're coming for the wall and what are we going to do about it so let's let's back up to the beginning of the scene let's talk let's 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 go through it point by point because there's a lot of things happening before the action even begins uh Yoke Boy, start us off with basically one of the first things that happens.
2: Yeah, one of the first things that happens is Rattleshirt, who we haven't seen for, for a while. I don't know if we saw him this season. I don't think we did, did we? But he, he gets completely and utterly owned by Torment. He gets owned <laughs> to death. Can I say that? Um, you might say that Tor- Torment won that argument. It was he, he beat him to death with his own club.
0: Yeah, we hear that the wildlings respect strength. Well, there that that's the quite a display right there. So there is there's a few other nods during this parlay. We see nods to other characters. There's this Laboda character who's a little bit like the weeper, just in a just barely, barely. he talks about pulling eyes out and Watching her 1-1 one, one, win one points out that dollarus Ed and the Giant have their little moment of staring at each other, which he wonders if that's maybe foreshadowing for what happens with Sir Patrick of Kings Mountain, who, you know, gets pulled apart by 1-1. One, one. I wonder if oh. Dollarus Ed will be the one to provoke 1-1. One, one. I hope not. Now that <laughs>
1: yeah, go, <laughs> We've really disturbed Lady
0: Gwen with that possibility, haven't we? I do. Yeah, we do not, a, a lot of people were really expecting Ed to die in this scene, so he may already be living on borrowed time, but I hope not. Ed is awesome, and I hope he continues to live, so, but if he made it through this scene, I think he's going to live through the season, at least. Uh, hopefully he isn't like, hopefully he isn't like killed alongside John, that would be like, oh, it's <laughs> really? You just had to just one-up, and like, all, because we book readers knew it was coming, you just had to throw something horrible in there to, to make us feel it too.
1: Right. <laughs> let him survive hard home to get yeah
0: what's interesting is is this actor playing one one has played other giants and he played a white walker in previous season and he played the mountain in season two and this is ian white is his name white with an i i mean a y (laughs) and also we talked about this in a lot more detail in our show only review so if you didn't watch that there's more talk about this. But the two, two members of the heavy metal band Mastodon from here in Atlanta were in the episode as well. And I went back to look for them. I finally found them. I found them both as being killed <laughs> during the action scenes there. So, uh, Youngboy, you had more thoughts on Laboda. And this is, uh, there's a parallel here, isn't there?
2: Yeah, Laboda, he says, as soon as you get on his ships, they're going to slit your throats. So that's what he thinks. And remember what Ollie says to Sam? What if we let the wildlings through the gates and they cut our throats as we sleep? So two references to, you know, people being betrayed and having their throats cut. And it's from opposing factions. Um, John really has his work cut out because some of the wildlings think the Night's Watch will betray them. And some of the Night's Watch think the, the wildlings will betray them so there's a serious amount of paranoia between the two factions a huge lack of trust after all those years of fighting as enemies and i think this is all leading to john stabbing now this kind of tension and paranoia this mood between the two camps and, and john trying to you, you know unite them the best he can
0: i agree and it's also all thrown into context in an interesting way by the fact that Laboda and others just absolutely refuse to ally with John. But then a few moments later, he's all about fighting alongside John once he sees what they're actually faced with and sees how, you know, when it's, uh, when it's a choice between pride and death, it usually pride loses out. So, even when you're a stubborn wildling.
2: <laughs> Didn't Laboda
0: ask for the gates to be shut? I can't remember. Yeah, it was him that ordered the gates shut. Well, yeah. an, isn't that ironic? That is funny, yeah. The way he's a par- kind of a parallel to John on the other side and their attitudes. So let's, talk, let's go ahead and talk about the actual invasion. It starts off with kind of suddenly. And it was not only sudden in terms of the scene, but sudden for all of us. I don't think hardly any of us were expecting a big battle scene here. We may have expected a conflict. We've expected like some duels, maybe some champions going at it. The the previews and trailers all made it seem like there was some kind of action happening here. People were running to the ships and stuff like that. So we knew something was going on, but I don't think anyone saw this coming in terms of the scale and the participants. We may, even though people who predicted that that the White Walkers would show up or that knew that, that there would be an, a, a lot of Whites didn't know the depth of what we would be faced with. So let's talk about this. There's a lot of different aspects to talk about, and it's good that we've gotten to this already at this point in the episode. So we have plenty of time to discuss it because there's just so many implications, so many guesses, so many predictions we can make, so many things to compare to the books. So let's get into it. Yoke Boy, start us off with some parallels to the wooden wall and the real wall.
2: Yeah, carrying on uh, with what we were saying, can I just first say i i just love this scene uh, the, this whole the whole sequence i thought it was amazing tv it was it like you said it came as a surprise i thought there was going to be some action at hard home i and never envisaged something like this they must have spent millions of dollars on them and well done to hbo for pulling out you know one of the best tv sequences ever make no mistake Okay, so we were talking about uh, Lobodo and him not letting people through the wooden wall. So the wooden wall really shows why John is definitely making the right decisions, letting the wildlings through the ice wall. We see that people are shut out and they get trapped on the wrong side of the wall and we see what happens to them. Almost immediately, they become a threatening force. So it makes no sense to keep these people out. John knows this. This is why he's letting people through. He he knows the army of the dead will only have more soldiers. So he's a smart one others don't see that. Um. Yes. Yeah, so so I thought the wooden wall was a kind of good good kind of mock-up of the ice wall to prove a point yeah
0: it's a really good way to parallel it shows what happens when you don't let them through it really really drives the point home if you're at all aware of it and then we have these four horsemen of the icepocalypse we're calling them and it's unclear how many walkers were there in total it may have just been those four that some of them may have come down later it's it's not clear Uh, one of our watchers had some did some work on that we'll get to a bit later but what we want to do is talk a little bit about the difference in the way they look from show and book. So, Yokbo, you have some you did some research on that for us. Yeah, I was just
2: really looking at the, the armor specifically in the show. They, they, the way that they carry their blades and the kind of shape, they reminded me of the Japanese samurai. I've seen some kind of samurai art and they were, were some. I think they wear a little bit heavy armor sometimes. And the,
0: these White Walkers' armor seem very, very light. Especially the one that Jon fought. You're right. The way he had a spear and the tassel and everything—it looked that did look very like a samurai, like Japanese. You're right.
2: Yeah, and and the actual material in the books—I think they probably didn't want to do this in the show because of the budget. But the the material is—I don't know—who's seen Predator when he kind of turns invisible. It's a little bit like that, but a bit more reflective. I've got a quote here. Its armour seemed to change colour as it moved. Here it was white as new-fallen snow. There, black as shadow. Everywhere dappled with the deep grey-green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. So it's almost like a liquid, reflective thing that kind of plays with the light and almost makes them invisible in this kind of snowy setting could almost um camouflage them is what i'm trying to say and obviously it was in the tv show it was a lot more simple but they looked really i thought they looked really cool and badass in their kind of black light uh, samurai-ish outfits
0: yeah what about the actual them not their gear there's their, there's some interesting parallels there as well we have the i guess they're similar they're supposed to have the white face they're supposed to be gaunt the and to be be very tall so that that's pretty much carried over i'd say
2: yeah i think i think in both cases they they seem quite human you know there's, there's hints that the the they're having a bit of a competition in the prologue they're, they're kind of they've got a sense of humor i think they um waymore wonders if they're laughing yeah or one of the characters wonders if they're laughing so in terms of their kind of personality they, they, there is a human streak i would say they they look a bit more corpsey in the tv show although over the seasons they have become less so I, I don't know if you remember early on they looked very kind of corpsey and kind of withered and shrunken faces i get the impression from the books that they're the more kind of elegant, I I think George has written about this to uh, one of the people that was drawing them to make them kind of elegant and, you know, not necessarily ugly as they have been on the show sometimes. Right on.
0: Now, another major potential difference between book and show is fire. There seems to be a big difference in fire and how it works. We saw a bit of it in season one where John torches a white, in in Lord Commander's Chamber, and that's very much, pretty much straight out of the books, but maybe because of FX reasons, or, you know, because it's hard to, it would be really hard if you imagined for them to have, like, a ton of different whites on fire during that battle, that would have added a lot to the budget, I imagine, plus the the reality of it, they have all this snow, they're, I guess they shot that in Iceland, and they're also defending a wooden wall, which, you know, you don't want to, Set, shoot fire arrows at your own wooden wall oh well maybe you do maybe you maybe that whole thing on fire would have been good for them to give them time to get away but i mean they weren't winning in any case <laughs> they weren't gonna win that fight no matter what but so that watching her isabel storch and some others wondered about that why they didn't use fire i think that's why they didn't use fire from a production standpoint is because it's just simply expensive. But also, it seems like Fire just isn't as important for the killing of whites. They're not the same. I even looked up what a white is compared to a zombie. I mean, we've been using the term loosely back and forth because we know they are whites in the books. And the show, they're supposed to be whites, but they really act more like TV zombies in some ways. And really, the only difference between a white and a zombie, as far as I can tell from looking up in terms of... White means a lot of different things, but in terms of fantasy... It tends to mean, it's like a zombie that still has its soul. That's really the difference. And we don't even know if a soul is a thing in A Song of Ice and Fire. So, but there's something there. Basically a white, I think the concept we should be realizing is that there's something from that person's humanity remains behind. They're not just a vessel. They're not just a yeah. corpse.
1: There's a quote um, somewhere about, you know, the eyes in remembering or, you know, knowing. I.
0: Mm. And we we get a a really big clue that the, wild, the White Walkers don't care nearly as much about fire. Although it's it's not clear how much fire bothers them in, in the books either. It's talked about as, as something that they, they're hated. But we haven't actually seen it do a whole lot to them. This White Walker fought Jon and Laboda among, in a flaming house. So he certainly wasn't concerned <laughs> with the fire going on there. So that's a clue that maybe fire is less important in the show in terms of this thing. But maybe later they'll they'll bring that out we'll see
2: just going back to the whites, uh, there's there's one key example of a white having memory when odor in, in the books he he knows where the lord's commander is you know it seems yeah. that way anyway that he he actually goes for the lord's commander and he was he was a, a man of the night's watch so he's drawing on memory there and
0: the other white that in that same scene And that same scene in the books goes for the first ranger. So both of the Whites targeted an an important character. And uh, that one succeeded. It did kill the first ranger. So uh, we have the scene. So one of the reasons I wanted to make that distinction between zombies and Whites is because there isn't much of a distinction. There is a distinction. But if you hear me say zombie, eh. Yeah. I apologize if, if that bothers you, but really, the way the show portrays them, there's not I don't there's not much of a difference. Certainly, with the Othor scene, it did matter because that was carried over from show to book to show where the they had the memories. But do these bodies just ro- flying off of a, a cliff and then crawling? That's more that's zombie to me. <laughs> and really, it doesn't matter. They're very similar, so I, I'm considering the terms largely interchangeable at this point for the show for the books. They're whites. That's fine. So let's talk about some other aspects of this battle. We have this, this new character who we got to know for a minute and then died. Carsey. What, what, you have some thoughts on Carsey there, don't you, uh, Yoke boy? Yes.
2: Well, first of all, i say she was really brilliant in a small role. I think people in the fandom have recognized that. They're, they're all saying that she was really good. I agree with them. Um, but personally, when I watched it, as soon as she saw her kids off... And she didn't get on the boat. I knew, <laughs> I, knew I knew, what was going to happen to yeah. her.
1: Yeah, I think we all did. Um, but then, you know, the way she was fighting, she was so ferocious. I had this moment, like, I had just thought, well, look at, she-, you know, she's really kicking ass. She's ch- just chopping her way through one zombie after the next. And then the little kid zombies, kid whites, showed up. Um, and that was so horrible to the way she just, uh, that broke her. It touched on her fears for her own children and she just stopped and let them eat her. It yeah. was awful. She just crossed
0: her arms. She just, crossed her weapons like yeah. she was already in like a, yep. like a sarcophagus pose, like an Egyptian mummy. Yep.
1: <laughs> that was awful.
0: Yeah. She had a really big impact for just such a short role there and, uh, all over social media people are declaring their love for her and it's important i think because her role along that of torment who is very reasonable and someone that i think a lot of people can respect in terms of his character i think that's building up to something that they've been building up for a long time is that the wildlings are just people they're on the wrong side of the wall and that's it they're people we're supposed to feel more sympathy for them as human beings this scene did a lot for that we get we see them Slaughtered. We see their humanity. We see them act. We see bravery. We see forward thinking. We see progressiveness. We see all sorts of positive traits from some of these wildlings. Even the one, even Lobota, who was cast as kind of a, a, a turd. You know, like I fucking hate thins or whatever we hear. But he, when it when the chips came down, he was brave. He fought alongside John. Took the da- most dangerous role for himself. Told John to grab the dragon glass while he went and faced the White Walker. So. I think this is a bit of getting us prepared for more sympathy for wildlings. Um, I'm starting to think the theories of Tormund maybe marrying Sansa in some sort of parallel to the Alice Karstark plotline has more merit to it. No. Uh, (laughs) I I still think it's a long shot, but it's not as crazy as it was. (laughs) So, what's oh, even funnier as we talked about how we saw that Lara character in Bravos. We saw her before in Salador San's scene last season. Watching her, Laura Timmons, and uh, at least one other watching her or two have been, have been suggesting, and I'm pretty sure they're right, that one of those children that faced down Carsey was the same little girl from the first episode. Same little redheaded girl. And yikes. <laughs> So speaking of seeing kids again, I I assume we'll see Carsey's kids again. As humans, I hope. Not as dead things in the water or something. But we could see that. But I hope not. (laughs) Now we also get, as the boat drifts away, we get this kind of ominous and beautiful overhead shot as John and his companions are drifting away. Now, a human by mistake watching her human by mistake wants to know why didn't john help row the boat and he answers his own question by saying because he rows nothing john snow Ugh. hey <laughs> hey there all right everyone just turned it off the episode after that pun now i love good puns and that was a good pun <laughs> okay so let's talk about some other things there's some overarching concepts some major concepts that were new things were revealed about and new experiences we've had as viewers seeing them ice magic big thing here we saw it happening it kind of built up everyone was kind of watching this thing it kind of looked like spiders in a sense the ice spiders not so we maybe see what they meant by that we've heard this term about ice spiders for so long and we were everyone was kind of as far as i know for the most part we were all picturing literal spidery like ice beings but the way the ice, kind of the snow, and the cold field kind of came over the mountains and everything, it really looked like legs of a spider in a sense. That might be what it was all along. It's this metaphor for the oncoming cold. That might be what, we, uh, might, what, what it was all along. So that's interesting. And the way those wildlings were frozen outside the wooden wall all of a sudden, that might be what happened to the wildlings in the prologue of, of the first book. Because they, they froze to death. It was pretty clear that they froze to death, despite the fact that it wasn't cold enough for that. Sir Waymar Royce, leading that expedition, he was a bit of a tool, but he wasn't stupid. And he made several smart observations. And one of them was that the wall was weeping when they left. And they were only about eight days' ride north of that. And there's no way it was cold enough to kill wildlings and furs who were capable of building a fire. What they didn't even try to do, meaning build a fire. So this is a clue, perhaps, or a connection to the power of the White Walkers as far as their magic and their ability to suddenly kill people with cold, I suppose. So, it begs kind of an obvious question. Can they freeze a large body of water? Can they freeze the Shivering Sea or part of it? Is this their way around the wall? What do you guys think about that?
2: I think... The, there won't be a way around the wall. I think that would be very cheap writing. But mm-hmm. uh, who knows if they can, you know, f- freeze
0: a little bit of the water or something. I don't, I don't know. But. Yeah, it's, it's very curious. I, I would think that they should be able to f- do some water freezing, but maybe not. Maybe it's not that simple. We do discuss the possibility of a White Walker invasion of Skagos in similar terms in our Isle of Skagos episode which is uh, available for viewing on our YouTube channel, of course. Now, here's a clue that, that this might be exactly what happens. From season two, I believe it was, her, uh, Will Webster points out that Melisandre says this line, the cold breath of winter will freeze the seas. Well, how about that? <laughs> we might get our answer right there, but I kind of agree with you, Yoke Boy. That would be a little cheap if the wall is just worthless when it comes down to it. But to be fair... The wall, as far as history goes, as far as what we know about history is, the wall was built after the Long Night. So it's never exactly been tested. It's not like we know that the wall works. <laughs> it certainly works at keeping out the wildlings, but we all know that's not why it was built. So that is very uh, much an open question. we It's hard to guess about the nature of the supernatural, especially in a world where George R. R. Martin has taken great pains to keep the supernatural somewhat vague. So he's probably never gonna give us complete thorough answers on how magic works, which is how it should be, because who would know that? Who in the world would know how well these things actually work? Nobody. No one's there's no there are no all seeing narrators or all seeing super wizards in a song of Ice and Fire, as far as we know. (laughs) Another another major development is this Valyrian steel situation. When John struck that white Walker, the fatal blow that turned him into a powder of sorts, I yelled spoiler alert at the TV. Although it is not necessarily a spoiler. It is probably more complicated in the books. Everything that we know about hints that Valyrian steel is fairly recent, at least compared to the others in terms of when they existed in history. But if it, so if it turns out that Valyrian steel is also this useful in the books, which seems fairly likely, but far from certain, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's why it was designed. It doesn't mean that Valyrian steel was designed for this purpose. It's dragon steel. is isn't necessarily built initially to battle ice magic, but it could be. So, well, you have some thoughts on not getting too far ahead of ourselves in what is and isn't confirmed about the books.
2: Yeah, I, I think that it's easy to get carried away, isn't it, with the show, but...
0: Yeah, it's it's reality check time.
2: I, I personally, I mean, people can do what they want, but personally, I'm not taking any confirmation from the TV show. Um there is so many changes. And just on this subject, like we said, whites don't seem to have to be killed by fire. I'm sure they saw them killing them just by chopping them in half and stuff. And and then they were dead rather than moving around. There, there doesn't seem to be Zora High. There doesn't seem to be Lightbringer. There doesn't seem to be Dawn. So it, just like they are for the rest of the story, they're simplifying things. So it's just too easy. I've seen people say, oh, that episode confirms Valerian Steel is this, Dragon Steel and this and this. Uh, I I've, I, you know I would urge caution on this I think it could be like you say more complicated and they're just simplifying it uh, uh, one example I'll give imagine if you'd never read Feast and Dance and all the things you'd be confirming like oh confirm <laughs> yeah. that Sansa marries Ramsey <laughs> y- y- you know just y- y- that's what people would be doing if if Feast and Dantan come out, we'd be watching that. And that's what we'd, you know, the community would be saying. And we'd be very, very far wide of the mark. So until something's in that print in the book, it's not confirmed.
0: I agree. And that's not, you know, there's nothing negative about thinking along those lines. That's just how it is. You, you make a very good point. Just because it's on the show and it seems to be a major reveal, it does, definitely does not mean the books will do the same thing. The books could do something similar. That's not like... Maybe Valyrian Steel is just very effective. (laughs) Where instead of turning another into a puddle like Obsidian does. But it could turn out that Valyrian Steel has Obsidian or a similar process involved in how it's made. We don't know how Valyrian Steel is made. Lots of possibilities. Now, here's a good spot to plug the Radio Westeros Long Night episode, which you guys talk about some of these things in great detail. Not, Not necessarily... Exactly the same, but very, very similar related concepts. So, Lady Gwen, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and give this a nice thorough plug?
1: Okay. Uh, yep, yeah, we have our uh, Fears for the Long Night episode, wherein we talk about the original Long Night. We go through the others, the last hero, Dragonsteel, and the idea that uh, the original Lightbringer could have been forged of iron and obsidian, which is something a lot of people are talking about in terms of Dragonsteel now following the show. We actually never mentioned Valyrian Steel in the episode because we were focused on the original Long Night. And as you said, Valyrian Steel comes much later on the timeline. But of course, you know, we understand the show has to simplify. Like Yoke Boy said, they take shortcuts. So we we do expect that some of those finer points of things will be lost. It's
0: not, it, it's not crazy to consider the possibility that Valyrian Steel and Dragon Steel are the same thing. It even happens in the books. And this is why this idea has taken hold already as confirmation of how it works in the books but we'll we'll see whether that's true or not but here's the quote lady gwen will will, will uh, read it for us that that shows why people are thinking along these lines
1: yeah um, dragon steel is only mentioned a few times it's uh mentioned by sam to john in a feast for crows and then you get this the same quote in the john mirror chapter in a dance with dragons and here it is Sam says, "I found one account of the Long Night that spoke of the last hero slaying others with the blade of dragon steel. Supposedly, they could not stand against it. Dragon steel." John frowned. Valyrian steel. That was my first thought as well," was Sam's reply. And then uh, later in A Dance with Dragons, you have John making kind of a jump. He he's thinking to himself, "We'll see." John thought, remembering the things that Sam had told him, the things he'd found in his old books. Longclaw had been forged in the fires of old Valyria, forged in dragon flame and set with spells. Dragon steel, Sam called it, stronger than any common steel, lighter, harder, sharper. But words were one thing, the true test came in battle. So it almost seems like it might be a confirmation, although I always thought it was meant to be ambiguous. Um, But so now here we are wondering... You know, if this is a shortcut the show is taking, is it actually information? You know, it does highlight these issues of when the show goes beyond the scope of published materials. At any rate, it seems very likely that Valerian Steel is going to be very important.
2: <laughs> of course, uh, John and Sam could have been way off the mark there. Yeah, I mean, often, often in a mystery, George will throw out something as a red herring, you know, as a, as his device. He does it again and again to make you think one thing, when really there's another answer. So, so it, it's it's a very complicated issue, and I like as he said in the books, we expect it to be
0: complicated, and in the TV show, perhaps it will be more simple. That just makes sense, as well as we're told that the The whole situation with Valerian steel rather is, is harkens back to something we were talking about earlier. And this scene with John and Sam is exactly one of those examples where they look like they're about to maybe reveal something and then it's kind of interrupted before they finish. <laughs> so exactly. It's like, exactly. Right.
1: Right. So there's, there's a piece of missing information there.
0: Yeah. So, now, let's look at possibly, since we, we aren't clear on how this impacts the books, we, we have a lot of suspicions, of course, and it's certainly correct to wonder how much of this is going to be similar, if not the same. But, since we can't go too far with that line of thinking, let's look at the show more specifically. What are other are some Valyrian steel blades that are in the show? The closest by that we know of is Brienne's, oddly enough. Her you know, Oath Keeper is right there. Right. You know, not right. like just far a little farther south at Winterfell. I don't see her getting involved, but hey, if she... I mean, not right away, but when it comes down to it, if Brienne is still alive when the White Walkers are really making progress south, assuming that all happens, well, I'd like to see. Well, what does Brienne consider more important? I can't imagine she's still more intent on getting revenge on Stannis than she is on fighting this evil. But what will she prioritize, Sansa or... Helping humankind fight the White Walkers, <laughs> or maybe mm. he gets to do both. Right, but that her sword is certainly noteworthy. We uh, watching her holy potato JD. Nice name there. Wonders or points out that didn't Joffrey get buried with Widow's Wail and it's true he it was it was seen alongside his body at his funeral however I really doubt he was actually buried with it Tywin would not have stood for that
1: no after all
0: that <laughs> Tywin is like no we're not burying that sword no chance if if Cersei had been in charge at that point point, then maybe she would have let that happen <laughs> but Tywin no way I don't think so Now, if we see Randall Tarly next season, which has been rumored, then Heartsbane could come into play, which is the Tarly ancestral Valyrian steel blade. That could be interesting. Watching her and friend Drew Hinkus wonders if maybe Danny could somehow stumble on a cache of Valyrian steel somewhere in her travels, either in Volantis or maybe if she flies to Valyria on Drogon's back. We talked about the possibility of her going there instead of the Dothraki Sea. Uh, it seems like a long shot, but you never know. If the show is going to make Valyrian Steel more po- more important or make a big deal out of it, well, we got to figure there's going to be more of it appearing somewhere. And Valyrian Steel is out there. What better place than Valyria for it to come from? Right,
1: exactly.
2: I would say it would make sense to actually limit how much Valyrian Steel there is. Yeah, I Ra- Rather than uh, bring in cachets. Of it, I think it would be more interesting if there's only a couple of people that could, that could kill the White Walkers. There doesn't seem to be many of them. Maybe just a small
0: cache. <laughs> yes. a cache of three. Uh,
1: Brienne and John. Imagine if Sam could get his hands on Heartsbane. <laughs> then you could have Brienne and John and Sam standing against the White Walkers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> yeah and as you pointed out briefly earlier uh yoke boy dawn is only referenced very barely once in the show at all joffrey when he's thumbing through the white book in that scene with jamie he mentions it very briefly when he's going over sir arthur dane's page but
2: yeah and one you know legitimate theory is that dawn could be dragon steel so if the show's missing out dawn this is my point you know If the show's not going to have Dawn, then of course they're going to make Valyrian steel. What Dawn could have been, there's so many possibilities like that that it it kind of. uh, I won't be confirming anything from the show. Yeah, as you can as you can tell, I'm pretty cautious.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's also talk about Knight's King himself. That's a huge topic. Good, good time for me to remind you all if you haven't seen it. Part 4 of our Religions and Magic series is on the Night's King. Of course, it's focused on the book version of Night's King, who could be very different. But still, there's a lot. We dug up everything there is to know about the Night's King and added some theories and predictions. So if you haven't checked that out, or if you have, maybe it's a time to revisit it. Good time for that. Because it's important to continuously remind each other that this doesn't necessarily have any impact on the show and vice versa. We can't be sure. As awesome as this villain was, he was amazing. He the, just even the actor did a good job, even though he's covered in all this makeup and stuff. He, he he could still he still portrayed and conveyed emotions and attitudes. But there's no reason why we should assume that even if there is a Night's King in the books, it doesn't mean that he is somehow in charge of the White Walkers. He could just be a historical figure. It could be some sort of historical parallel. In general, there's just no reason to assume that there's some boss White Walker. There could be. There really could be. There could be a king of the White Walkers that's essentially the same as this knight's nice king. But we should not assume that. Just like we shouldn't assume Valyrian steel works like dragon steel or that it is going to have the same effect in the, in the books. So will there be a knight's queen, which has been talked about in the books as, as a different sort of being? So, there's some options here. What do you think, young boy? Okay, Night's Queen. Well,
2: there doesn't seem to be any female White Walkers on the show thus far, does there? And remember that they turn Craster's son into a White Walker on screen. And to me, that suggests that they have reproduction problems, right? They all have need of ice Viagra. vi ice <laughs> <laughs> They have reproductive problems, which could be that there is not any females. OK, and in, in the books, there's a knight's queen who is the obviously the one that marries the knight's king. She's described as otherly. So, you know, a, a good bet is that she could be a female other. But there's also an option that um, I think about that she could be a hybrid because there's accounts of the others laying with wildling women and siring terrible half-human children, it says. So this Night's Queen, she could have been one of these hybrids. Uh, They they might not be able to have female White Walkers still, or female others. And um, that would make the Night's King's attraction to this female more feasible if she is in fact, a kind of hybrid. So that that's one idea. Um, altogether, on, on the TV show, I, I, I don't
0: think we're going to see a Night's Queen. What do you think, these? I don't either. I agree with you. It doesn't seem like it hasn't been mentioned. It hasn't been suggested. And I agree with you that there seems to be a thing where there are only male White Walkers. In fact, this touches a bit on some... This is pretty deep theorizing here. But I think that what... It ties into one of the popular theories about the origin of the others which is that they were created by the children of the forest as a way to get rid of mankind you know the cold above ground could freeze everything whereas the children can stay underground in their holes and, and survive it all and when they emerge there's no more mankind and they can go back to living the way they were well it makes sense if they designed this race to exterminate mankind let's just working with that theory as a possibility it would make sense that they would be like, well, we don't want this getting out of hand, so let's not let them reproduce. We'll create them in a way that they can't reproduce. But the walkers found their own way to continue their species. Life always finds a way to continue itself. Life wants to keep living. And you've been watching Jurassic Park. <laughs> yes, uh, definitely. I want to see some. I definitely want to see some dinosaur whites. <laughs> Dragons and dinosaurs—they're—they're they're closely they're related, aren't close. they? <laughs> So it's, that's that's my tinfoil for the day. Although certainly, when we learn whatever explanation we ever hear, if we ever hear uh, much of an explanation for how the others, the White Walkers, came to be, it's probably going to sound pretty crackpot, no matter what it is. Mm. <laughs> it's going to be very magical, whatever it is. It's, it's not going to be yeah, all be discussions
2: of the Long Night a are crackpot, aren't they, Aziz? You can't you can't talk <laughs> about the Long Night without getting the tinfoil from the kitchen and. Wrapping your face, <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're working with Valyrian steel tinfoil here. Valyrian tinfoil. Yeah, Valyrian foil. <laughs> <laughs> now, another neat thing from the scene was just they really made a point to have Jon and the Night's King lock eyes a couple of times, and two different, at least two different type times. This happens. Is this Lord Commander staring down Lord Commander? Is, that's kind of what's happening, right? There's, he's, the Night's King is supposedly the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. and Is that what drew the Night's King eye to Jon? The, why was the Night's King staring at him? There's a lot of possibilities, of course. The Valyrian steel blade. He may have sensed it. He may just see a guy in black and be like, oh, that's a, a member of the Night's Watch. I know them. <laughs> I hate those guys. <laughs> uh, it could be that he's a Stark. It could be that because they're both Starks, that's a huge possibility. Because we there's lots of rumors, certainly from the books, is the Night's King was a Stark, and John, of course, is a Stark. No matter which theory you believe on who his father was or who his mother was, they all pretty much include him being a Stark, either as Lyanna or Ned. So, another thing he could have been sensing there, and we've all seen in the books, the even the wildlings know what a Stark looks like. They're like that. That guy looks like a Stark to me. It's like a. Somehow everyone knows what Starks look like. So, in any case, John is no longer the only killer of a White Walker in the series now. He is the, st- of course, Sam had to be first because Sam the Slayer, but <laughs> John is now a Slayer too. John Snow the Slayer, the Snow Slayer. <laughs> you guys have any other thoughts on just Knights King, who this character is and what his deal is, what he wants, what he's after?
2: What he's after, I'll say that uh, we mentioned before that they seem very human. You know, they, don't they? the way they ride horses well, in the show, they, they ride horses and they're... They have they're a leader, some of them seem to be subordinates. And, the yeah. subordinates, the, the, the weaponry and the, the armor. They There's seem variations to, there, yeah. Yeah, they seem to be very human, not just some kind of... They seemed like, like one thing I've seen posted around is that they're kind of corrupted humans... And that's kind of what they look like, isn't it? Humans gone wrong, and you know they've got this magical ability. What was the, what was the price? Who knows? Yeah. Like, like we said, whatever alley you go down, it's down into complete crackpot. It's such a difficult <laughs> thing to to ascertain what the Night's King wants. But um, who knows? If it is Stark against, if they're both Starks, I would like to see if the Night's King would draw draw his sword to John because
0: um, of kinslaying. Hmm. I hadn't considered that. Yeah. Wow. Them fighting each other. That might, yeah. You wonder, because it's qu- quite possible that the, the white walkers as villainous as they may be. They may be, they may uphold Northern traditions. They might, kinslaying might actually matter to them, especially if they used to be people. If they used to be humans, they might have some of that vestige of, of their human beliefs even this far in the future.
2: Yeah, and they've got they've got the Craster in them and stuff. I mean, it's strange. Craster was, they say, he had black blood. He was a kind of half night's watchman. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing. But, you know, I like the idea that there, there'll be something to stop them hurting John and something to endear them to John as well. It, it'd be interesting if they had politics rather than just warfare in their future.
0: Now... It, this this makes me think of Tyrion in a funny way. Tyrion, when he was presented with the situation in the North while he was handed the king, he didn't want to seem like an idiot. He didn't want to start announcing in front of court that the White Walkers are real, that there's real whites and all that, despite Sir Alistair having proof of it. John's now in kind of a similar position. What's he supposed to do? Get back to the wall, send out letters around the realm? Like, yeah, saw the Night's King, stared at him. He was riding a dead horse, you know, <laughs> thousands of whites <laughs> plummeting <laughs> off a cliff. We saw a cold shape like a spider. We may have seen a nice dragon silhouette above that. Yeah, we saw all that. So send help. <laughs> send your Valyrian Steel Blades.
1: <laughs> not going to go over well. Remember, in, uh, in A Feast for Crows, John says to Sam, so if I can just convince the lords of the Seven Kingdom to give us their Valyrian Blades, all is saved. That won't be hard.
0: <laughs> so. They're all fighting each other right now, so yeah, they're really not going to be interested in sending their, their famous swords <laughs> Excuse <north>. me. <laughs>
1: S- send me your your, fa- your house's heirloom. <laughs> so. Then you can go back to your war. <laughs> yeah.
0: you think some of the northerners might take this whole thing seriously, but people in the south are just going to be like, you have got to be kidding me. What the hell is this boy commander talking about? Give me a break. I don't believe any of this.
2: Dolores said, is not having my family heirloom.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, That's to right. To fight snarks and grumpkins. <laughs> it
2: would be really interesting in the books when, when you know, the, the cold, cold comes and, you know, the White Walkers are doing their thing. When word reaches the South, what they'll say. And what what it's gonna take for them to be convinced? I mean what, do they have to see something? What's it gonna take for them to really be convinced that there's an <laughs> army on its way of dead people?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so looking far ahead, how well looking thinking about the possibility of the White Walkers being halfway through this through the kingdom, like at the neck or in the riverlands or something like that, something that we can kind of see coming thinking along those lines really drove an interesting point home for me and there's confirmation that this is going to all going to happen think back to season two danny's visions of the house of the undying one of those scenes although it was a it was a condensed scene it wasn't didn't contain nearly as much as what the tv uh, what the books contained as far as the house of the undying it did contain something really important which was the iron throne and snow which lets us at least think that this, that the White Walkers will at least get that far south, which is really, really far south. That's like more than basically halfway down the continent, which is chilling to think about. Thinking along those lines, it's now, in retrospect, John's death, whatever form it takes, is now just blatantly obvious to me. And Of course, things always become clearer in retrospect. But can you really imagine... Humankind facing the White Walkers at the Trident or at King's Landing at the Red Keep. And John still being alive in normal capacity. How could the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, a brave guy, a Stark, who liked Rob, who liked his father, Ned Stark, not necessarily his father, but his father figure. Who both of them were known for putting themselves in the thick of the battle. Whenever there was a dangerous assignment, they would take it on themselves. John is the same kind of guy. There's no way he survives and the rest of the Night's Watch goes down. If the wall comes down, if the White Walkers get that far south, of course John is going to be dead or at least killed and then brought back. It just would never have made sense to me for him to be alive. But I just never thought along those lines before. And now it's like, wow, it's kind of obvious in retrospect. Of course John's going (laughs) to die. So the fact that we're getting him back probably is that, you know... That's the less likely thing. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it hasn't happened yet, so we shouldn't be too sure about that. Okay, we have time for just a couple of Watch or Her questions here. I have a whole bunch of them here. We're not going to get to nearly all of them, but if you had a good question, and especially if I told you that your question was getting answered on air, well, fear not, because we're going to do a wrap-up episode at the end of the season. We're going to talk about things from a whole. We're going to talk about things maybe that are coming later, but we're also going to pick up a lot of these questions that are still relevant we're going to be answering some of those later. So if you didn't get your question answered the last couple of times, fear not, that could still happen later. But real quickly, uh, Billy Davis III did a bunch of screen capping, and he thinks we've seen about 15 different White Walkers so far in terms of the different looks they've had and their appearance, which is interesting. And he, he thinks there were only four different ones at Hardhome. I thought there were more, but I, I could see that being accurate because we saw the four on the horses, and that, that could have just been those four. Now, Luca Marina Baker asks a great question can all white walkers raise the dead or just the knights king well i don't know <laughs> we don't know it seems like maybe he can do it on a larger scale maybe and the other white walker maybe they can do it on a smaller scale i don't know but that would be interesting if he's the only one that can do it i don't know that's a great question i i, I can't give you a real answer but i like the question a lot and it's something i'm going to keep thinking about he also asks if dragonglass can kill whites too. And that's a definitive no in the books. At least Sam tries to stab the small Paul white with a dragonglass dagger and it just breaks. <laughs> Part of that is because Paul's wearing And armor. then he, he uses fire, doesn't he? Yeah. And we also wonder, he also wonders how long ago did the white walkers return? And he wonders if some of the similarity in their looks are because they're Craster's children. Well, that's a possibility. That is an interesting idea. Mance has been trying to unite the wildings for like 20 years. And we're reasonably sure the White Walkers have been active at least part of, if not entirely, during his campaigning to unite the wildlings. So that could explain what's happening. These, these, They were awakened back then, but now they're like coming of age, and that's given them the strength they need to continue their push. Mm. Could have been some incredibly ancient being awoken again. Again, we're talking about supernatural stuff. It's impossible to really feel confident in any particular answer here. So... It's a great mystery. Do you guys have any thoughts on any of that?
1: Just my particular, I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on and say it was the birth or the rebirth of the prince that was promised or Azor Ahai reborn that woke up the White Walker. Very interesting. interesting. That's cool.
2: Um, I was going to point out that in the books, it's it's the same about their appearance. When we first see the others in the very first prologue. It says that they were twins to the first. Ah. They're talking about what, the one that has the fight. And it says they were twins to the first, i.e. they're identical.
0: Interesting. Now, Christopher Ballster wants us to take note of the arrangement of the wildly corpses back in season one, episode one, the way they were put about. It, it could be some symbology could be related to the symbol the Knights King was wearing, which we, we couldn't make sense of it in any way. It's a cool symbol, but I, I can't I couldn't read anything into it. And along the same lines, her Terran the Black and Sarvesh sea wonder about that knight's king armor and about his symbol around his neck. Well, they definitely have a language of their own. There's this quote from the prologue. The other said something in a language that Will did not know. His voice was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake, and the words were mocking. Kind of like the rustling. The cracking of ice is like these natural sounds. This could be the old tongue. Will wouldn't have recognized the old tongue. It's possible that's what they're speaking, but it could just be their own language. Other watchers have been curious about the white Walker armor. Yep, well, you talked us through that quote earlier about the armor. So it could be the black in the show could be a nod to the fact that there some of these uh, white walkers may have been nice watchmen, if not just the one Lord Commander. So that could be a connection to that wearing black, a simplistic version of that. Mario Rakop wonders if wildfire could be effective against the whites and white walkers. I never considered that certainly certainly the whites not sure about the white walkers but yeah wildfire is gonna burn anything pretty much so it should definitely be effective against i I mean
2: a smoldering log a smoldering log kills Mm. one of Mm. the whites you know it's it's barely got any fire on it it's smoldering And and it takes them out. So think about that. Wildfire It'd be funny if that's what took down the wall. Wildfire.
0: (laughs) Cersei.
1: Cersei. Oh, Cersei.
0: (laughs) We have some other questions that I'm going to have to save for later. Good questions about Melisandre and Shadow Babies and Sacrifice. Stuff that is related to some of the other plot lines. Great questions, everybody. We're going to save some of these later and mention them another time. Let's go to our... Beginning of our credits, and then we're going to talk at the end of the credits. We're going to do a quick talk about the trailer and some neat things to talk about there. So thank you to our one hundredth Patreon supporter, Javi Marcos of the Podcast de de Hielo y Fuego, podcast of Ice and Fire in Spanish, the only Spanish language podcast related to the books and show that I'm aware of. If you speak Spanish, go check it out. We also got our one hundred and first Patreon supporter who was racing to be the 100th, but didn't quite make it. But she is the Lady April Lauren Boyd Stark, and she is working on a name for a cool castle that we can add to our credits. Also, I want to thank Hand of the King and First Lord Cash Craig, a.k.a. Vaxxis, on the History of Westeros forums. Warden of the North is Lord Parker, the Bastard of Starkville, breaker of the First Stone. We have a new warden working on his title and name right now. We'll just call him Warden Lord Jim the Fortuitous until the rest of his glorious title is determined. We have Master of Coin and First Counselor Lord Robert Jacobs and Master of Whisperer Lord James the Scholar. Grand Master Itai wears the jeweled collar of many medals. Lord Rosie the Clever is our Master of Laws and Lord James Tuttle is our Master of Ships. The history of wa- the Knight's History of Watch, Lord Commander, is George the Golden, and our King's Guard is commanded by Lord Commander Shepard. Sir Troy the Steady swings the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate as the History of Westeros King's Justice. Lady Dyrla's of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron, Lord Nathan of the Firefort, and Dan of the Red Mountains, Lord of Great Bill, and Breaker of the Second Stone, round out our list of Lords and Lords. Reminder, folks, we're going to do a live episode next week. Check the description for the time. It will be on Wednesday, and we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Like I said, there'll be some Q&A talk as well, or Q&A functionality so y'all want to look into that and, and test it out for us and try to ask us some questions during the episode and we'll see how that works out.
2: Yeah, we'll be here too. Come on, I'm really looking yeah. forward to yeah. this. And then you can you can ask us your
0: questions in real time and we won't know any of the answers. <laughs> yeah, so also thanks again to Radio Westeros. How about another plug for your site in case people have forgotten that was about two hours ago that we did that. <laughs> yeah, come to RadioWesteros.com to try out our podcast
2: and on topic try the theories for the long night episode if you like dragon
0: steel and all those kind of topics right on now it's possible that some of the scenes from the trailer are from the final episode and not just episode 9 adios to people who don't want to be spoiled by the trailer we'll see you all next time I am rushing as I often do at the end of these show episodes there's always so much to talk about people say how do you get how do you talk for two hours about a one-hour show how do we not talk more yeah. <laughs> about it is my question. I don't know. So it takes all kinds. Not everyone is as obsessed as we all are, but we're happy with that. John Tormund and One One, we see them approaching the wall in heavy snow, and Alistair's looking down as if he might not let them in. I think he will let them in. You guys think he'll let them in, or is that, is that just a way to kind of— Scare the show watchers a bit, or yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. It's, I think it was I clever think, editing, sorry. but I think I think you'll be
1: let through, and then something very bad will happen.
0: Yeah, it would be an interesting alternative to the stabbing, the just the freezing. Like, <laughs> nope, sorry, yeah. you're out there. I, yeah. Then we have then we have Doran Martell saying, "You can swear your allegiance to me, or you can die." I'm very excited to finally see some real conversation with Doran Martell. We get some real action out of him, action from a guy in a wheelchair, but. He. Who's he talking to? Who do you guys think? Is it Braun? Is it the Sand Snakes? Alaria? Yeah.
1: I thought maybe. Could it be Jamie? I thought maybe Braun. I don't think Jamie. For some reason, something in the, the editing made me think it was Braun. But that, mm. again, that could just be clever, you know, cutting from scene.
0: Well, watching her, Sir he suggests that Braun's thoughts on Dorne in general, how he's a big fan of Dorne, their sexuality, their music, it could, could be a foreshadowing of him flipping to their side. And it could be. You know, like Ari Sokart, it could be Tyene that, you know, seduces him and brings him over. And then Doran offers him some sort of inducement. And he's like, hey, I already like it here. I I'm like this st- music. I'll yeah. stick around. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> and we see Arya and Jaikin progressing towards the, this pot, this likely murder of the insurance guy. That doesn't seem to be anything sneaky in the trailer there. It, maybe they'll surprise us with how that's going to play out, but seems to be kind of straightforward. Then we have the, the North. We have Melisandre looking very concerned. Tents are burning. Davos and Stannis sister are together. And Davos has, his, or Stannis has a quote, if a man knows what his destiny is, he must fulfill it. Mm. Uh, that looks like something's going to go down. We're going to figure out. We're going we're to find out what happens there. Melisandre looking concerned is, is interesting to me. And, uh, uh, yeah, we're all really worried. If we were doing a Worries of the Week, this would be, I think, where our worries are yeah. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> All around Stannis and his people. Everybody That's where the worries are. Yeah. But then we get the pit. Is it too soon for, for, for Jorah to be in the scene? Or maybe we'll have some time passing and that'll allow Jorah to, you know, montage his way into the scene, perhaps? Or is that too soon?
1: I don't think, I mean, given the speed at which they progress things, probably not. Yeah. I, hmm. I expect it to happen in 9 or 10.
0: Right on. Yeah, and of course, can't wait to see Drogon come down. Assuming that's what's going to happen, that's going to be amazing. I, I guess that's next episode. Whew, that that should be well worth the price of admission. Seeing this big old dragon come down and maybe burn some sons of the harpy or whatever mm-hmm. that that's going to be eye candy. I I um I I usually try to set my expectations low, but I'm I'm expecting this to be really cool. Yeah, <laughs> I
1: can't believe they have any special effects budgets left for that. <laughs> they <laughs> yeah, must have right? saved something special for this.
0: okay well thanks again to radio westeros lady Gwyn, and yoke boy it's always a pleasure having you guys here you add so much to the show and our feedback that we've been getting reflects that very much so we will see everyone next week we'll be back with and of course like i said keep an eye out for the times of the live episode valar Margulis, everybody Sign up to play daily fantasy sports on DraftKings.com through HistoryOfWesteros.com. In the bottom right of our front page is a link that says Play Fantasy Baseball with Aziz. You can do that by clicking on the link and making a deposit, which they will match up to $600, assuming you actually play a little. They don't just give you a free $600. But they do give an immediate free ticket just for signing up, a free tournament entry, which gives you a, a way to play without putting too much into it or anything into it, really. You could also play for free to try it out. Here's how it works: you're given a virtual budget. You get to make your team based on who's playing that day in whatever sport it is, not just baseball. It's soccer or football for Europeans, American football for everyone. There's also hockey and NASCAR, even. And I believe they even have ultimate fighting. They certainly have golf. There's every sport is draftable. Every sport can be played. And you get to watch your team perform in real time, see how you're doing. You get to compete against up to thousands of people at a time or just one person at a time. It's a lot of fun. Good way to get a thrill out of watching sports. Even if you're not a, if you're not a sports fan, you can add excitement where there wasn't any before. And of course, you're supporting History of Westeros while you do it. www.historyofwesteros.com, bottom right corner, DraftKings. Valar well, Baseballists, everybody.